I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me this evening to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. It's one of those minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. It's right there between Nahum and Zephaniah. You probably need the table of contents maybe to, to find it. I invite you to do so. But Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 5. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Here now the reading of God's word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and, will I, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as, is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He, ne he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Sends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Please pray with me. Gracious and heavenly Father, Please be with us now as we delve into the word revealed to your prophet Habakkuk. Help us to learn what it is to live by faith in the face of immense trials. Help us to learn to turn to you when our world seems to be crumbling around us. Please be with the preaching of your word now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we come uh, to our passage tonight, we are confronted with one of the great problems we face as Christians from competing worldviews, the problem of evil. The problem of evil goes something like this. If God were all good, then he would want to prevent all evil. If God were all powerful, then he would be able to prevent all evil. Evil exists, therefore in all good an all-powerful God cannot exist. Seems pretty compelling, right? But as Michael Kruger points out in his book, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. It's a great book, by the way. I, I highly recommend it to you or any of you guys going off to college uh, in, in just a couple of months here. But, but what he says 
uh, is that this premise fails to recognize our limitations as finite, fallen human beings. It presumes that, that we are able to understand the big picture. We can see uh, how all things affect each other throughout history as a whole. And this is the problem that the prophet Habakkuk is wrestling with before God in our passage tonight. Habakkuk is going to run the gamut from self-righteous indignation to waiting upon the Lord to ultimate rejoicing, to ultimately rejoicing and finding his hope in him and everything in between in the face of these immense trials. And tonight we are going to see that because we know who God is, we can live by faith in him regardless of our circumstances. Tonight we're going to do this by looking at three things. First, we're going to be looking at the greatness of God. Secondly, we're going to be looking at the reality of the wicked. And third, we're going to be looking at the faith of the righteous. So that's the greatness of God, the reality of the wicked, and third, the faith of the righteous. So with that, let's get started with our first point this evening, the greatness of God. So here we are in the, the middle of this dialogue between God and his prophet Habakkuk. Now, scholars believe that this book was written sometime uh, no later than the end of Josiah's reign, which was from 640 to 609 B.C. Uh, the reason that this is important is that prior to the reign of Josiah, Judah had radically turned away from God under the extremely wicked leadership of kings Manasseh and Ammon. And after Josiah's reign, they quickly returned to their, own, to their old ways. In this oracle, Habakkuk is witnessing God's judgment on his people at the hands of the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, for their wayward ways. These Babylonians have come for violence and to gather captives. And the Bible says earlier in this book, they are guilty men whose might is their God. And because of this, Habakkuk is lodging two complaints or, or prayers to Almighty God. He cannot believe that a holy, just, all-powerful creator God can, can just sit by idly while these atrocities are happening to his people. He's angered that, that these Babylonians wage war and, and lay, lay siege to Judah, God's people, the very place where God's temple resides. He can't believe that God is, in fact, even ordaining this to happen. We read in chapter 1, verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, to march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. To Habakkuk, this all-good, all-powerful, just God is employing a wicked nation to enact this horrible evil on his people. And this is the context for our passage this evening. So in Habakkuk's first complaint, found in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he pleads with God for, for justice to be done. God then reveals to Habakkuk that, that he is doing a mighty work in Habakkuk's day through this violence. And this brings us to Habakkuk's second complaint, which is found in our passage this evening. In verse 12, we read, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? This is a shocking, abrupt, and some commentators even say bordering on irreverent, this, this call to God from Habakkuk. Francis Anderson points out in his commentary that this type of question is, isn't a, it, it's a rhetorical one that isn't really aiming at information, but rather he's trying to make a point. And, and this point is usually one that the hearer already knows. 
Therefore, God's prophet appears to be rebuking God, correcting him for this grave oversight that he's committed. Habakkuk can't fathom these events coming from his loving God. He says, are you not? And this is being used to reproach God in this prayer of complaint. Anderson says, nothing could be more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer. This is, there is nothing like it anywhere else in the Bible. God is not approached with courtesy here, and there's no respect. This, this is not a reverent invocation. And Habakkuk doesn't appeal to God's justice here. He appeals to God as our creator, and, and he appeals to God's holiness. He says, you are from everlasting. You are almighty God. You are holy. And yet all these atrocities and these injustices are happening. How can this be? The case being brought before the Lord is, you know, you, you have made all of this and we're your chosen people. So do something about it. You have the power. Habakkuk says, we shall not die. He is stating that, that God's people will overcome their current difficult time of oppression by this foreign, foreign political power, together with the injustices that go with it because of who God is. He goes on, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk knows that, that these Chaldeans are not working outside of God's providence. After all, God has created all people, even these Chaldeans who, who, whose horses are swifter than leopards, are fiercer than the evening wolves, who fly like eagles swift to devour, and who laugh at every fortress and pile up the earth while they capture them, as we read about earlier in chapter 1. Habakkuk knows these Babylonians do not do these things outside of God's purview or, or control. He just doesn't understand how this God could allow this to happen. Habakkuk's problem is often our problem. We rarely have doubts pertaining to the sovereignty of God when our circumstances are good, but when we are faced with the horrible realities of a sinful world, sin that we human beings are responsible for, for example, the death of a loved one, a horrible illness, or perhaps even a broken marriage, we have a hard time correlating God's sovereignty with his promises to care for us. Habakkuk doesn't have the categories to process God's holiness alongside his choosing to punish Judah in this way. We see the holiness of God further explained in the first part of verse 13. It says, You are of purer eyes than, than to see evil and cannot look at, at wrong. God can have no part in evil. It is contrary to his character. For God to be evil would be for God to cease being God. And because of this, Habakkuk asked the following question. Why do you sit idly? Why, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He asked, how can this wicked nation be used to enact justice on the less wicked nation of Judah. The problem here is the same as the one that we saw in our introduction. How does an all-powerful and holy creator God allow evil to happen when he has the power to stop it? This brings us to our second point this evening, the reality of the wicked. 
In verse 14, Habakkuk continues to accuse God regarding the violence that is taking place. We, we, we read, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The statement takes the created order and it actually flips it on its head. Yes, God is sovereign over all things, but in the eyes of Habakkuk, God has made mankind, once the pinnacle of all his creation, now to be like the fish of the sea or the creeping things that scatter around with no ruler. They are like those fish in the river when I take my kids out fishing. Inevitably, some kid throws some huge rock or some stick into the water. Everything darts away. We pack up, call it a day. Those fish are gone. This fishing metaphor is continued in verses 15 and 16 where we read, He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He, this being the personification of Babylon, brings God's people up with a hook. And if we look at Amos 4.2, we see that not only is this a vivid metaphor here, but it was actually a common practice in those days to either pierce the nose or the lip of the people uh, conquered to take the detainees in a humiliating single-file line after being taken captive. Babylon is ensnaring God's people and is enacting God's judgment upon them. And Babylon rejoices as he masterfully gathers God's people into his net and gets fat off of their oppression. And then, as if this wasn't bad enough, Babylon makes an idol out of his instruments of war. He makes sacrifices and offerings to them. God's people are being destroyed by Babylon, this this pagan nation that worships its military might rather than the one true God. And this causes Habakkuk to ask in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk here is asking, are you going to do anything about this, God? Are are, are you going to keep letting them off the hook? Pun intended. While your people are suffering like this, are you just going to let them go on killing whole peoples forever? Again, Habakkuk can't reconcile a holy, all-powerful creator God allowing this type of evil. In our own day, Why is it that our brothers and sisters around the world are are, are being called to endure the hardships that they are enduring? In his article, The Countries Where It's Most Dangerous to Be a Christian in 2022, Joe Carter tells us, over the past year, 360 million Christians lived in places where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. Of that number, 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 were abducted, and 5,898 of our brothers and sisters were killed for their faith last year. Things are especially bad for, for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, where for the first time, Afghanistan has supplanted North Korea as the most dangerous country to be a Christian. In Afghanistan, where it's believed that thousands of Christians possibly live, the report is that the Taliban will make sure that Islamic rules and customs are implemented and kept. Christian converts don't have any option but to obey them. 
If a Christian's new faith is discovered, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. And it's widely considered to be justice to do this. Also, since leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity, a Christian who has converted from Islam can be forcibly sent to a psychiatric hospital. In North Korea, where it's estimated that 400,000 Christians live, we read any North Korean caught following Jesus is at immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death. The article then goes on to report eight more countries and the atrocities that take place there. But our God sees all of it, and our passage tonight has a word for us when, these, when, when thoughts of doubt creep into our heads when hearing these kinds of sta- staggering statistics. And this brings us to our third point this evening, the faith of the righteous. So we have this problem of evil that needs to be resolved, but after airing his grievances to God, Habakkuk does something interesting. As we see in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk states, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Again, Habakkuk may not understand why God is allowing all of these things to happen, but he does understand that God is in control of it and that he has a purpose in it. Therefore, Habakkuk waits on God. And in verse 2, we see God answer Habakkuk. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God is going to give Habakkuk a vision and he is going to write it down that all may see it and that it may be delivered throughout the land to his people. In verse 3, we continue to read, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk is going to, to get this vision for God's people, but he doesn't know how long he's going to have to wait for it. God is in the midst of something, and, and Habakkuk is going to have to trust in him. Trust him to be the almighty God, the, the, the almighty good and just God that he knows God is. Habakkuk is to wait for this appointed time, this ordained time. And then God says it. What everything in our passage tonight has been building towards in verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Brothers and sisters, our our passage points out to us tonight that we created finite beings don't have to be wrapped up in, controlled by, or frightened by the onslaught of this present evil age. We are oriented by faith in the knowledge that, that the God of all creation is in control of everything and that he is good and just and faithful and all powerful. And he is a sovereign God. We don't suffer in vain. Our answer for the, for, for the evil we face tonight is the same that it was for Habakkuk. Our, our answer is not in the changing of our circumstances, but in the trusting of God, who he is, and that he is working all things according to his good purposes. This is incredibly freeing when you think about it. 
Regarding the problem of evil and, and an all-good, all-powerful God, Krug, uh, Michael Kruger, the one I mentioned earlier in the introduction, uses the example of parents in his book to illustrate how God can even use the evil of this world for the betterment of his people. He says, good parents would never let their child feel pain. Otherwise, they must not be good. Such a principle holds only if parents have no good reason for allowing their child to feel pain. If the child has an intestinal blockage, the parents would be quite willing to allow the pain of an emergency surgery. If a child has a propensity to go off into the middle of the road, the parents will, will enact discipline, that is, it, you know, cause pain, that would motivate their child to, to stay by mom and dad. And if a child has a cavity, a parent would be quite ready to let the child endure the pain of a filling. In such cases, parents can be good and allow pain at the same time. The point is that you can trust your, your parents, right, boys and girls? Yeah, you can. How much more, then, can we trust and have faith in Almighty God, even if we don't understand what He's doing? Though we are fallen human beings and we're responsible for the sin of this world, our God is so great that He uses it for the good of His people. The righteous shall live by faith, as we see in chapter 2, verse 4 here, is a distillation of how we get to live a God-honoring Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even rabbinic tradition says that this verse boils down all the precepts of the Mosaic law into one pithy saying. God demands this kind of faith in our passage this evening. So the question then not only becomes how can we make sense of evil in this world, but also how can one hope to have faith in the midst of it? Well, this may bring the question to your mind. So what does this vision from Habakkuk and Judah all the way back in, in the 600s BC have to do with us New Covenant Christians today? Well, as some of you may know, our passage is quoted three times in the New Testament. And one of these places is Romans 1, 16 and 17, where we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The problem of evil is a problem of sin. It's a human problem. And the wages of sin is death. But the good news for us is that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life according to the law, the life that we could not live and died a horrible death on the cross, the death that we deserved. And in doing so, we have been clothed in His righteousness, just as He took upon Himself our unrighteousness, canceling our debt, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. He has conquered the grave and has ascended up into heaven, sending the Holy Spirit to work faith in us, and we know that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We know that justice will be served. We know that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will pass away. And brothers and sisters, unlike Habakkuk, who, who was waiting for the promised Messiah, we stand on this side of Christ and his cross. We know that Jesus died on the cross to rescue a people for himself, 
We know that he accomplished this, and we know that the battle has already been won. Regardless of any circumstances that may occur between the cross and Christ's second coming, we can trust that it is finished and that God is working all things together for the good of his people. So let us hold fast to this gospel as we encounter the hardships of this world, living by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we too might say in the day of trouble, along with a change to Habakkuk at the end of his book, that the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olives fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Brothers and sisters, let us trust in this Christ and his gospel when presented with the difficulties of this life. Let us know that he has made us right with God by his blood and let us put our faith in him. The solution to the problem of evil is not knowing why it is there. It's trusting that God is in control of all of it, that Christ has died for it, and that God uses even the evil in this world for the good of his people. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation this evening, I'd like to ask you what's holding you back. Turn to Jesus and know the power of this gospel. You don't have to lay subject to the evils of this world. If you're visiting with us or or you have any questions, please feel free to come to either myself or ask any of the brothers and sisters around here this evening. They'd love to help you in any way that they can. May we all trust in Christ and not our own understanding. Let God grant it. Amen. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for being the almighty, holy creator God that you are. We thank you that we can trust in your good plan for your people. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that we don't have to live in fear concerning the circumstances of this world. Please forgive us for doubting during the various difficult providences in our lives. Forgive us for doubting when things are going well for that matter too. Please help us to see the reality of this life through the gospel lenses day in and day out. Help us to love and obey you in all the days of our lives. Please be with your people as we go out this week and help us to approach each moment with the humble confidence that comes from intimately knowing you to your glory alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. With that, I'd like to invite you to rise as we sing How Firm a Foundation, verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. Let us sing of the glory, the great gift that we have in Jesus Christ and his cross.
Now as you go your way into the week that God has prepared for you and uh, take up the good works that uh, he's called us to for his glory, for his name, trusting in his sovereign goodness and power, go with his blessing. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you all till Christ come again. Amen.